Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Left Anchor. This is Ryan here. Um, this uh, is just will be, just be a shorter discussion about a, uh, a a few of the more subtle um, and maybe more complicated and difficult me to questions. Um, given the we did, recorded this a while ago, but given the uh, the whole ongoing Brick Kavanaugh catastrophe, we thought this would be a good time to um, put this one out there for you. So we hope you enjoy it. And Alexi will be uh, back with us in just a moment. Okay, we are back. This is Alexi the Greek here with Ryan Cooper. And today we will be talking about an item of the news that has been talked about a lot, especially in the context of the Me Too movement, uh, a surprising and complicated situation involving a critical theorist who is much beloved by the left or many on the left uh, who writes about everything from feminist theory to uh, psychoanalytic theory, uh, broadly renowned in the fields of political philosophy and continental philosophy, at least. Uh, NYU professor Avital Ronell has been undergoing a lot of criticism for the alleged sexual harassment of one of her grad students, or I should say at this point, former grad students who sued her uh, under Title IX, and the case was investigated by NYU. There was a finding of inclusive, uh, inconclusive, um, inconclusive finding with respect to the sexual harassment, but a conclusive finding that she at least was inappropriate in her comments, emails, texts, and impliedly the abuse of her power over her grad student. There's been a lot said on this specifically because Avital Ronell is, is renowned for the ways in which uh, both her philosophy and her uh, expressions of it are part and parcel of a broader left critique of power and power structures. So this case is extremely complicated, not just for the seeming hypocrisy there, but also because of uh, a letter or two signed by colleagues of Avital Ronell, um, including uh, Zizak and Judith Butler, who are yeah. well-renowned in their own right and, and, and somewhat public intellectuals. All the more complicated is the mystery around whether this letter signing um, was indeed done without knowing the confidential facts of the case, which makes it very bizarre to come to the defense of someone accused of abusing power and accused of sexual assault or sexual harassment uh, without knowing the facts. There was there are all kinds of confidentiality issues which are themselves problematic with people after the fact saying, really, they know more than they can say, but because they aren't allowed to say, you just take my word for it that I'm defending her in a way that makes sense. And so that's just a convoluted, complicated thing. Uh, so we can tease that out a little bit. But at the end of the day, what you have is a grad student who sued over abuse of power. And 
some prominent intellectuals coming to the defense, um, all on the left, by the way, we should, we should say, of someone. And in the letter that Judith Butler and Zizak and others signed, part of the defense had to do with her stature and prominence and uh, strange defenses that seemed to call into question uh, really the quality of support when those excuses pertain to just kind of endorsing power as, as being uh, above the law, right? So I think that's a good place to start with our, with our talk and, and try to situate it um, within the broader Me Too movement. Yeah. So I don't know, Ryan, what, what had you heard of this and what's your familiarity and what maybe do you have a, if you had to write a hot take for tomorrow on this, what, uh, what do you think your angle would be? <laughs> uh, ooh, boy, that's a, that's a dangerous, those are dangerous waters to tread into. Um, I, I think that there are, uh, maybe a, a couple of sort of broad lessons you might draw from this. Um, the, the first is that, you know, you, you certainly it appears to be the case that even given this, um, this case and another one we're going to mention in this in a minute, like the overwhelming majority of sexual harassment is uh, men harassing women. But contrary to, you know, the the way that people tend to talk about this as if you could completely get rid of sexual harassment and, and other sorts of similar abuses by, you know, sort of removing men from positions of power it's not at all the case that women are entirely innocent of this. And um, David Dayan had a great piece about a, uh, a um, banker in uh, a wall street banker woman who um, was uh, basically like, quasi kind of pimping out one of her uh subordinates to other like male executives in the bank maybe that's not quite the right name for it but just like encouraging harassment of her and using that to to uh, boost her own status and when a male uh colleague of this woman uh, called her out on it and tried to uh, get her to stop doing it. You know, there was massive retaliation inside of the bank and he ended up, his entire career was destroyed and he is now working in like a, you know, some very small blue collar job, you know, making like 5% of what he did on wall street. Um, so, you know, it, it is a human thing. Um, you know, again, certainly, it's mainly a male problem, but it's not universally a, a male thing. And um, not even being a leftist, you know, professor can can stop people from abusing these sort of temptations. And I think that's um, a, yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I think that's an important point that you're that the temptation part that you're talking about and the temptation is not because she's a man as if it's gender essentialist. And and this goes to your point about 
men are the typical perpetuators of uh, sexual abuses, but also abuses of power, not for biologically essentialist reasons, but because the patriarchy that we live under is one that structurally has put men into positions of power more than it has women for the most part. And so because of that, there's this correlation between um, men and the abuse when it's really, I think, structural and those who have power as you say are in a position where the consequences for their abuse of power are if not negligible far lower than might incentivize some to avoid those abuses or um, like you say tempt people especially when something like sex which is as complicated and um, not uh, a simple cost-benefit analysis um is involved. So in the yeah. same way, right. In the same way that we would, I, I think we, at least as leftists would disagree with the notion <clears throat> that racism can be divorced from capitalism and the structures of economic inequality that are born of that. Uh, and therefore, if you simply uh, flipped all the people uh, in power, or if you, if you made everybody colorblind somehow, that that would lead to perfect equality of treatment towards all the races uh, that misses out on the ways in which power functions because of the power instabilities and asymmetries. And similarly, those women that have power in positions such as this uh, in a structure, we should say like academia, which is kind of like a feudalistic structure at, at this upper um, level, you know, this graduate level, where there's so much power that these star academics have over their grad students and their careers, that structure and that reality really takes over any gender essentialist causation for who's doing what to whom. So, so the scandal here is not just that it's a woman that did it, but someone whose actual work that she's renowned for relates to power. Yep. So only a, de- a- demonstration of their own argument personally which i think you you tell me but i think that also is an indictment of the ways in which and 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 funnily enough this is also something that's in the the philosophy that the left broadly is taken up with having to do with affect theory and subject formation uh simply having knowledge in your head if you will does not mean that you incorporate it into your being and how you act towards others. So knowledge itself has to be understood to be an embodied thing for it to be uh, actual. And this is, I think, also a misreading of Plato uh, and Socrates. When Socrates says uh, he or she that knows right will do right, he wasn't a moron who thought that, <laughs> right? That, that, you know, when, when people think of that, they just easily dismiss it. Well, I see people all the time that know better and, and don't act in accordance with what they know. So was, were, were Plato and Socrates so stupid? No. In fact, their understanding of what it meant to know was something that was integrated into your action already. And so, in fact, if you didn't act in accordance with it, then you didn't really know it, actually. And that's, I yeah. think, applicable here. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that also, you know, again, we're going to talk about Hollywood maybe in a minute, but... um you know, what What has been the big story in graduate students over the past, like, decade? 
Well, them just being like basically treated like sweatshop workers, you know, um, may, people, you know, working on their PhD or whatever. And, <clears throat> you know, they're teaching heavy class loads and writing a, a dissertation maybe or some sort of other, you know, classroom work and getting paid like $20,000 a year, you know, for highly skilled, highly difficult work. And, you know, so the the big movement over the past few years has been, uh, you know, to unionize grad students, to try to, you know, basically recognize the fact that these uh, folks are just being t- horribly exploited by the university system and sort of carrying the entire apparatus on their back um, to, you know, gain themselves a little bit more power, a little bit more influence better treatment, so on and so forth within the uh, academy. And, um, yeah, when you, you know, you look at what sort of institutions, uh, you know, harassment and abuse happens in, I think it seems, you know, I, I haven't really, I haven't read like academic research on this exactly, but it seems fair to say that it, the, the, the greater the level of hierarchy within the institution or industry the worse these sexual harassment problem tends to be um you know when grad students are powerless when some superstar professor has their career in their hands you know and they just have to please someone to 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 be able to have a prayer of making it in their chosen profession um then you know people who are unscrupulous or they can't control themselves um, will take advantage of that opportunity. And I think you see the exact same thing in, well, the Catholic Church, for example. That's also a good example. You could maybe, you know, bracket some sort of maybe particular sexual deviance that's influenced by the sort of celibacy stuff. I don't know about that particularly, but at any rate, it is a very hierarchical organization. But also Hollywood you know, there, there's probably, that's probably one of the most hierarchical industries in the, in the world. You know, this is something where I believe I've seen statistics that 10% of actors in Hollywood make 90% of the money and like half of actors are unemployed at any one time. So it's just not a, probably even more asymmetrical statistics when it comes to the producers and studio execs that can make your your career. Such as yeah. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. So do you make, want make to go or, make that? or break? Yeah, we could. I would just add one last thing about um, the case in academia, which goes to Corey Robbins' point that if you put aside all the sexual uh, aspects of the case and still, you can still focus on. You would see how bad the harassment is and the exploitation of labor is. Uh, with respect to all the other demands that were made on the grad student, um, irrespective of sexuality or of romance or of whether they had a relationship that was inappropriate because of the power dynamic. And that was definitely something that all, I mean, I was a grad student and, and I can relate to this to some degree. I didn't have to pick up laundry and I, I wasn't, um, I think there's a spectrum uh, of exploitation and a spectrum of abuse, but yeah. 
something that is totally systemic is even the leftiest of leftists in academia take advantage, or I should say most take advantage of their grad students in this kind of capitalistic quid pro quo. I And, and also this notion that I went through it. There's this justification that this is what I had to do, kind of like a boot camp. And then, you know, I had to do this. So this is just what you do. In fact, I have <laughs> this memory now that we're talking about this of a professor of mine that when I got my first graduate degree, I talked to, to him about my fellowship and my work under a new professor when I was getting my second graduate degree. And what he told me was basically just to be crude, bend over and take it. And essentially that's just the way it goes. I, you know, he, he, yeah. he told me not to fight the fights of the other professor for that professor, um, but also never to publicly go against my professor that I was um, studying under and had my, my fellowship under. Um, but when it came to the work demanded of me and the maybe unreasonable requests to just bend over and take it and just kind of wait it out. And I think that is universally the case. I mean, the, the exceptions are, I think, in the very, very small minority. Um, so, so sexuality complicates but does not really um, – stand apart in essence from the na- the oppressive nature of, the, of these structures in academia and as as you mentioned uh in in places like hollywood so uh so yeah let's let's, let's get into that yeah it's it's certainly i would say it's it's worse sort of abuse obviously than having to pick up somebody's dry cleaning or whatever but it is a it is just a i think you're correct to say that it's it's a special case of that general system in which people are just forced to accept this type of hierarchy and subordination without any kind of option. So, yeah. And then, so Hollywood, you know, this obviously has been, you know, the past couple of years, one revelation after another. I mean, it's just been knocking down dominoes, um, you know, Harvey Weinstein, I think, was the was the first really big one. Um, and there were I don't even know how many people came out for him. So uh, many. And, and yeah, we can't con- like conflate them all because they varied in, in degree and number of people abused and the extent of abuse and so forth. But from Louis C.K. to uh, any number of, quote unquote, heroes of liberal Hollywood, a lot of... Uh, I, Kevin it is Spacey. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, a lot of people that were not necessarily known, like Kevin Spacey, I'm not sure was 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 known to be that kind of character. I think Harvey Weinstein, even beyond Hollywood, people had a sense that he was a bit of a scumbag. But uh, I, for one, did not had no idea. And I think people that even worked with Kevin Spacey, a lot of a lot of them did not have any idea. Uh, of such predatory behavior because otherwise he seems like a stand-up guy. Um, yeah. But in particular for the Me Too movement in the context of uh, the academic case with uh, Avital Ronell, which we brought up in part because it was much talked about and complicated, but also because of the ways in which the left uh, has to confront some of the hypocrisy and 
complicated questions when someone whose leftist bona fides were, you know, heretofore unquestioned, <laughs> right? And, 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 and so forth. Uh, Harvey Weinstein is not such a person. I, I think besides being a liberal in Hollywood, no one thought he was a, um, a, a lefty revolutionary in any sense. But yeah, no, but uh, a complicating factor in the Me Too story has been the story of Asia Argento, who accused Harvey Weinstein and, and is one of the victims of uh, Harvey Weinstein. She herself, yeah. it turns out, recently it turned it became um, it came to light that when she was directing a film. And she was about 37 years old, I believe. Uh, a young actor who she may not have known his age, but he was 17. He was underage at the time. Uh, she slept with him, uh, even though he was an actor in the film and she was a director. He apparently, when she came out accusing Harvey uh, Weinstein, she apparently had to settle... Um, the lawsuit with him to keep him quiet so that he would not speak ill of her and ruin her reputation amidst her allegations against Weinstein. So there was like a payoff of three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars something like that. And the internet now has pictures of, of her with him kind of in bed topless or something um, to that effect. Yeah. She and, initially and- denied sleeping with him. And then later it came out text messages of her admitting to do doing that. I think she didn't know his age, but she also had this in the text, this cavalier attitude that it's not a big deal. After the fact, realizing that he was 17, what's, what's the big deal, uh, essentially? So there's yes. the, the, the 20-year age gap, but also the fact that she was a director and he was an actor at the time, so she had the ability to fire him, had power over him. Um, what to make of a victim of sexual assault, sexual harassment, uh, being someone who is now indicted as being a perpetu- uh, a perpetrator of, of sexual harassment at the very least. So how do we, how do we think through that? Of course, what we don't think is the kind of Jordan Peterson response, which was a tweet. Uh, I think oh, he gosh. had a tweet. Oh, oh yeah. I, I, he was, I think he um, must've been quite elated to, to see this development. Uh, he tweeted something like, Live by the sword, die by the sword, and and some inane comments on the situation like that. So I think that's not our our perspective. So what uh, what do we think about this? Yeah, this this one is this is a tricky one. You know, so so obviously you know some initial matter that like we don't know what happened exactly, um, and you can't you know it was only the two of them there. Certainly we can, you know, she did apparently lie about having slept with him, but that doesn't speak to the specific con- uh, context of the, uh, you know, the event itself. And um, I, if, if, if we are to take this as a credible accusation, I think something that, that, uh, bears some light on that is uh, the letter sent by all those lefty academics, including famously Judith Butler, defending her friend, um, you know, from this accusation. Um, 
and I think it goes it goes to show that people's ability to rationalize things is almost bottomless um, to where when somebody like for example um, you know uh, Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky case uh, and um, a number of feminists including uh, Gloria Steinem wrote this infamous op-ed that was basically sort of slut shaming Monica Lewinsky saying like well she was uh you know she she it was a consensual thing and um you know what's the big deal and so on and so forth and sort of like just like papering over this this wildly inappropriate affair that had happened even if it was consensual it's like the the president should not be sleeping with a 21 year old intern um i think that what strikes me about the text messages that T- TMZ posted was that she really kind of seemed to believe that this this like kid had you know I think she says like oh this is horny kid and he just jumped me and that if for someone if you're a 37 year old like major Hollywood person and you're like a director of a film that's not a situation you could ever really find yourself in, you know, um, unless, you know, unless like it was an actual physical force thing, but she's never said anything like that. And it seems it, it really smacks to me as someone who, again, allegedly is, was basically writing themselves a sort of subconscious permission slip at the time for doing something they knew was wrong and knew was inappropriate but sort of wanted to do and, uh, you know, just sort of let happen or, or sort of like may took steps to allow to happen or sort of like, you know, how, how, how people can sort of like shade the conditions of events such that like, Oh, you end up in the same room together and like, Oh, let me just take a shower. So, you know, like that, that type of situation knowing, you know, sort of a double think type of situation. And, um, you know, and I think it speaks to our, you know, our basic point here, which is that like that, that type of delicate interpersonal thing is really tough to solve. But when you, what thing you can do is change the overall inequality in society. You know, you can make it so that, uh, there's not such a yawning gap between rich and poor difficult to change maybe the acting industry in general but if you were to say you know like you got your welfare state you know everybody's got health insurance you know they're like good jobs are easy to find they pay well blah 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 um you you wouldn't uh extirpate completely this type of abusive behavior but on the margins it would make it easier for people to uh, you know, say no to, to not put themselves in that sort of situation and perhaps even condition the minds of people in power to be like, well, this is something I am, this is not, I can't get away with. I don't know. What do you think of that? I I think that's a great point. I, I also think, 
and, and this parallels our, our prior discussion as well, I think that being a victim of abuse and being a victim of the asymmetry of power that, say, Hollywood has, which, uh, you know, Asia Argento was, and <clears throat> in the same way that having theoretical knowledge about power structures did not relieve uh, the NYU professor of the temptation to abuse her power asymmetry herself. Similarly, having been a victim of a Hollywood, not just power structure, but also norms that flowed from that power structure. Uh, I think she, just because she was a victim, did not escape both the temptation of power, but also, I think in a weird way, even being a victim of a system does not um, automatically eradicate the influence of the culture and the norms of, of that system on the ways in which you can rationalize your own behavior when the, when the shoe's on the other foot. So I think even though it was a structure that led to this scumbag harming her, it's very easy to not do that kind of analysis. And this is where th theory is helpful. And even if you're a victim, you might say Harvey's a monster, which, okay, he is, but he's also a product of a system. And yeah. I am not, she, she probably says to herself, I am not a monster. So rationalizing, even though there's this power asymmetry and dynamic with this, the 17 year old, she didn't know how old, old he was. Maybe, uh, she thinks I'm a good person. It's kind of pop, uh, social psychology 101 if somebody else does something bad it's because that's who they are at the core of their character if i do something bad it's because i didn't sleep well last night or i was misinformed you know we, we make excuses and the circumstances define our bad behavior but uh other people know that's just their character so i think some kind of psychology rationalization and influence of norms in combination might be to be to blame in a sense and that just speaks to the need to, as you say, level the playing field, take away the kind of um, idiosyncratic elements of whether or not abuse and injustice are kind of instantiated by, by people. And maybe also change the norms to the extent that we can, that there aren't just these monsters and angels involved that happen. Wow. The monsters happen to be on top and the angels happen to be on bottom. That what a coincidence, right? But it's actually, if yeah. we really, if we really mean that the structures are, are fundamentally the cause, well, then when the victim is in a structure where she's in a power position, it shouldn't surprise us all that much that she also became quote unquote, a monster in a way. Right. Yeah, I think so. And I I mean, you look at like child molestation, that's a thing that is very often passed on, you know, people who are abused when they were children often go on to do the same thing. Um, it's, and that, it's that's a, interesting. That, that's, that's kind of like a psychological parallel to the structural dynamics that we were talking about. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, perhaps just to, uh, to close it out here, um, there's a very interesting article by uh, Katie J.M. Baker from uh, about five years ago. Gosh, it's called uh, Cock Blocked by Redistribution. And it's basically a book review of 
one of these pickup artist guys who's now like an alt-right guy. Um, uh, Der- Derush uh, Valizda. He's known as Roosh. And so he wrote this series of books in which he went to various countries and it was like, here's how to manipulate women to sleeping with you in these countries. And it was called, you know, bang this country, bang that country. Um, you know, bang Brazil, bang Iceland. One of the um, more interesting uh, books and what uh, Baker is reviewing in this article in Descent Magazines is called Don't Bang Denmark. And so this guy Roosh went to Denmark and he tried all of his techniques for manipulating women and, and they pretty much backfired uh, uh, universally. Um, and he talked about, uh, you know, it's like how in his view, the extraordinarily generous Danish welfare state had sort of like percolated through the minds of like everyone. It created an entirely different culture where, uh, he says, uh, you know, quote the Danish egalitarian system and Jante law, which is to say, uh, this like sort of Danish ethic kind of mythical Nordic thing. They feed on each other to form what is one of the most liberal, feminist-friendly societies in the world. Therefore, when it comes to getting laid, your American attitude and belief system will cock-block the fuck out of you before you even open your mouth. Since basically the entire point of game, or pickup artist thing, is showing you're better than the next guy, something that John Taylor specifically forbids, it's no surprise to find that game efforts will not be well-received in Denmark, especially if you consider yourself an alpha male. It was amusing how often and how quickly I'd offend every Danish girl without even trying. So that's, a, you know, that's interesting. As, yeah, as as Baker writes, um, advocates of Nord- Nordic social democracy should be thrilled to discover a perk of gender equalizing work family reconciliation policies. They combat skeeviness. And um yeah, again, you know, I'm sure if you, you know, looked at some statistics, there's still sexual harassment in Denmark. Um, but I think what this goes to show is that to 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 a large extent, this type of thing really is an outgrowth of inequality and the way that inequality allows people who are either, you know, weak-willed or have been damaged in their own way, you know, the victims of, of, of harassment or abuse, or are just, like, predatory to take advantage of their power in an unequal system. And if, and if a society is more equal, then, you know, that will really place a powerful uh, counter-effect on those sorts of, you know, terrible instincts. That's a great point. It will both remove the vulnerability and precarity from those victims who might feel like they have to give in to various forms of um, predatory behavior uh, because of their precarity. It it also, I think, from a subject formation affect perspective, emboldens with confidence those who, having economic and socioeconomic equality to a large degree feel also that they are equal in other ways and helps inform 
uh, a better understanding of how to relate to others as equals and how they should be relating to them. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to me that also politically, if these very fundamental contestations of class have largely been won in favor of uh, equality and egalitarianism, that makes space for political consciousness and political contestation to focus on not just the fundamental economic inequalities, but inequalities of behavior that, that are more to do with the ways in which privilege and uh, patriarchy uh, attempts oppression in subtler cultural, uh, psychological, relational ways. And so that makes a lot of yeah. sense to me. Yeah, definitely. So leftists focus on the fundamentals and the rest shall follow, I think. Yeah, that's right. The the battle is never over, but you know, you could you certainly can point to some things which will almost certainly have a powerful impact. Indeed. Well, thanks everybody. Tune in next yeah. time. Right? We'll be seeing you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.